Listener production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Tuesday, the 21st of September. And Annika Smethurst, it's a very exciting day, isn't it? A little bit, Tom. (laughs) (laughs) A little bit nervous. I'm in the hot seat. Yeah, well, I've been waiting for this day for ages, ever since you first started talking about writing a Scott Morrison biography. I've been waiting for the day where you and I would sit down and really just go for it because often we're just asking people questions or working through the headlines, but today we're going really deep. Yeah, it's unusual to be in that situation. Um, I guess I didn't realise how much I've absorbed about the man Mm. over the last year writing this book. It was a bit of a slog. If anyone out there is writing a book, I feel for you right now. But um, I'm really proud of having it out in the shelves and I hope you enjoyed it. Yeah, I certainly did. It's called The Accidental Prime Minister... And it is the only, and by that alone, the best biography of Scott Morrison. But I think no one else will ever write one because you just covered so much ground in this book. So there's so much to cover that we're going to do two episodes on this. There'll be two briefings. Today will be part one. Um, In today's, you're going to find out what Scott Morrison's staff has said when they found out that Annika was actually working on this book. (laughs) We'll also find out where he grew up. And how different or similar that was to the daggy dad Shire Sharkies fan that ScoMo portrays himself as now. Um, So much there for people that like him or can't stand him or just want to understand more about this very unusual everyman. So part one on Annika's book in just a moment. First, here are today's big news headlines. Ugly violence on the streets of Melbourne and a big construction shutdown. The Victorian government has shut the construction sector in Melbourne and other lockdown zones for two weeks following those violent protests by workers yesterday. These crowds are being used by cowards so that they can conduct criminal activities. These Some of these right-wing extremists are using these opportunities to do the same and that's of significant concern for us. So that's the Victorian Police Commissioner Shane Patton speaking to the ABC. There were crazy scenes on the streets there yesterday out the front of the CFMEU headquarters. Police had to use rubber bullets to disperse hundreds of protesters that got violent. They were hurling projectiles at union leaders and damaged the building. Now, the protest was in reaction to rules mandating all construction workers have to have at least one COVID jab by September 23, as well as a health order banning tea rooms on sites. Here's the Premier Dan Andrews' reaction. There'd be a whole bunch of people who are at home because their industry's shut and they'd be scratching their heads about why anyone would be protesting about being open. Union leaders say they were being unfairly blamed for state government rules and condemned right-wing conspiracy theorists for being behind the protest. So, Annika, does this mean a whole construction industry with hundreds of thousands of workers is being shut down just because of the actions of a few hundred extremists? Yeah, look, it is hard when you go down to see these uh, protests in the street who is actually got a legitimate gripe and as the union is saying that they're saying they're being infiltrated by extremists and neo-nazis maybe there's a crossover where there are some people who are builders and also have these extreme views look it has shut down the whole city though and it's hard to know where um i guess sympathies lie but a lot of people as dan andrews said there haven't been over to work for months and seeing them protest which initially started earlier in the week because they didn't get their tea rooms and now having to get a jab has left a pretty bad reaction, I would say. Shutting it down, though, is a huge mm. decision, not only because there's a lot of government construction going on, especially on the railway and things like this, but also from a Premier who's factionally of the socialist left. And it's a big call for him to walk in and say this. 
Yeah, and at a time, I guess, where he's planning to reopen the economy and get things ticking along as vaccination rates increase. Acting Prime Minister Barnaby Joyce has backed Christian Porter for a returned cabinet, saying the former minister hasn't done anything wrong. Mr Porter has not done anything illegal. I believe he should be given another chance uh, at some future time in a senior role. And that's coming from a man who uh, loves a second chance, um, has needed a few. Christian Porter stood aside as Industry and Science Minister, as we reported yesterday. He did that on Sunday after the Prime Minister's Department began an investigation into his acceptance of anonymous donations for his legal battle against the ABC. Joyce, who is acting Prime Minister while Scott Morrison is in the US visiting Joe Biden, said Porter was a capable minister but may have to reveal who donated to his legal bills in order to return to the front bench. Yeah, or pay them back, I guess, which is pretty unlikely because it was a huge amount of money. Barnaby Joyce said it's now up to the voters of Pierce to decide on Christian Porter's future. So, yeah, it will be really interesting to see how the upcoming federal election plays out for Christian Porter. And a bit of positive news for New South Wales, with case numbers dropping below 1,000 for the first time in three weeks. Premier Gladys Berejiklian says cases may have peaked, but warns the state not to get too complacent. I don't want any of us to sit back and think the worst is behind us because unfortunately uh, too many families are going to have loved ones end up in hospital or worse. Once we start reopening, cases will go through the roof, but it won't matter as much because people will be vaccinated. Yeah, and that will be very interesting to watch because health authorities are warning that hospitals will witness unprecedented demand next month when those restrictions are eased. And under the state's roadmap, vaccinated people will be allowed out, gathering in retail, hospitality, venues, once we hit that 70% double dose target. And so that date of opening is expected to be October 11 or 18. More big news in the Gabby Petito case in the US. The search is continuing for the influencer's fiancé after a body believed to be hers was discovered yesterday. Yeah, police overnight searched the Florida home of Petito's partner, Brian Laundrie, uh, who's been missing since last week. Laundrie was travelling with Petito across the US in a camper van uh, and they were sharing their trip with their hundreds of thousands of followers before She went missing in the remote part of Wyoming and then he returned home without her. Authorities yesterday found remains believed to be those of Petito in a Wyoming national park and their search of Landry's home comes after he disappeared after declining to be interviewed when he returned. All right, let's talk about the accidental Prime Minister. So the day has finally come where we are here, Annika Smithhurst, and I have a copy of your book in my hands, The Accidental Prime Minister by Annika Smithhurst. Finally, it's here. Good feeling, Tom, but shops aren't open, so it's a little bit weird. I would love to jump into a Dimex or something and see Mm. it on a shelf, but I'll have to wait another seven weeks for that, but it's great to see it online anyway. Yeah, I just read the whole thing during my time off, and I've got to say, It's a really great piece of work, so congratulations. I really actually enjoyed reading it. I don't normally reach for political books when I read books, but this is really compelling. It's a page turner, which I think shows that it's well written and constructed as a story. I'm glad you say that because I actually love reading political biographies and always have. 
But some of them, I feel, are written for other journalists or other politicians or other staffers. They're really inside the Beltway, as some sporting books are, really for those people that live it and breathe it. And I wanted this to be accessible because, love it or not, he's all of our Prime Minister. We all have a role in getting him there, keeping him there or getting rid of him. So I think it's important we know what makes this bloke tick. Yeah, well, it does that really well. It's really rigorous. It goes into lots of detail about his childhood. You've spoken to his schoolmates, other people from his community. We learn a lot more about his career pre-politics. Wow, some of the stories from his time at the New Zealand Tourism Body and then Tourism Australia, as well as in the, the New South Wales Liberal Party. So many massive fights, basically, which really gives you a sense of how he handled himself in, in conflict. Um, and then we learn all about his political career as well. It's tough, but it's fair but it doesn't tell readers what to think. They can decide that for themselves. As you say, they'll do that on polling day. So let's get into it. A huge part of what makes this a good book and a great read is that you actually got access to Scott Morrison and many of his contacts, which he handed over to you. So that tells you a lot about the book, uh, that he decided to grant you access. How much time did you get to spend with him? I did, I think, three longer interviews. And yeah, I think it tells you not just about the book, but about Scott Morrison, the man. This wasn't authorised. He didn't say Annika Rudder book on me. I tried to get away with it privately for a little bit until I started ringing some of his friends and contacts and they dobbed me in. And by the time I went to the Prime Minister's office, I said, I'm writing a book on the boss. And they said, yeah, we know. Um, <laughs> which shows he's got a lot of loyal friends out there that were, you know, didn't want to talk to me on background. They rang him first. But I think he's a pragmatist um, and that comes across in his politics, but also he knows he's Prime Minister. He knows there's going to be books written about him. Why not put your two cents in? Because otherwise you're just going to get your enemies and we all accumulate enemies in our lives, Tom, over <laughs> our working career. I wouldn't want them just briefing somebody out on a book. You'd want to mm. get the full mix. So, yes, he did agree to talk to me for, I'd probably say, a couple of hours all up. Yeah, he also sent some of his uh, closer friends to uh, give me a call and give their perspective too. Okay. A few hours is a long time with the Prime Minister because mostly us journos get sort of five or ten minutes with our interviews. So I imagine they were very different conversations to the ones I've had with him in the past in a broadcast interview where you're just peppering them with quick questions. You went deep and it comes out, you you learn that as much as he's pitched himself as a, a daggy suburban dad from the Shire in Sydney who loves God, his family and rugby league, you find out that he actually grew up in a suburb called Bronte in Sydney where houses these days cost $3 million plus. Um, they actually played rugby union, not rugby league. But as you sort of unpack, he didn't grow up wealthy at all, did he? Tell us about his childhood. Yeah, I, I guess you could argue either way, depending on how you feel about it. He did grow up in Bronte. That's not exactly poor. But his family weren't overly wealthy. They were gifted a house. They actually um, moved in with an aunt who didn't have any kids. And he says, should we not have got that, we would have lived in Western Sydney, like a lot of the rest of his family did. He also, interestingly, as far as Liberal politicians go, John Howard was the first one not to go to a private school. I would say Scott Morrison is the second, but he did go to Sydney Boys High, which isn't your standard sort of state school that people would have been to in the 80s. It's um, selective and has actually produced a fair few prime ministers. So he grew up around, I would say, comfortable middle-class people, but he definitely wasn't the son of a doctor or, you know, somebody at the upper echelons. His dad was a copper. His mum worked a little bit. And I would say it was a very middle-class, basic life. Not hard by any means, but this has given him an insight, I think. When people think of the Liberal Party, some of it see as the top end of town, the business party. 
Other people still see it as that aspirational middle class. I don't want to be in the union. I don't work in a trade or something like this, mm. but I'm looking for a party that speaks for aspiration. And there's just as much of that in the Liberal Party as there is that top end of town. So I think he's very good at tapping into that. And often those people are swinging voters more than the top end of town. So as a political strategy, I think it's worked really well for him. You mentioned his school, Sydney Boys High, which is a public school, but it's as close as you get to a private school for a public school. You actually called some of his school friends. What did they say about him? Yeah, note to anyone playing at home, if you've been in a yearbook, they are all kept at the National Library, uh, including my school and everyone else's. They get sent off and anybody can look at them. So I just walked in, asked for all the yearbooks, then you get all the photos and LinkedIn is an amazing source. So I was able to track so many of these people down that might not have seen him for 20 years. Some of them have stayed in touch. I guess I tried to build a picture of what Scott Morrison was like at school. A lot of politicians, I think, if you went back and talked to Josh Frydenberg's peers, probably Christian Porter's peers, um, Malcolm Turnbull's, they would have suggested that they were involved in those things, debating, um, going to you know, proper schools overseas, the Cambridges and the Harvards after they left Australia. And they really were on a route to being in politics or, you know, up until a certain point, Prime Minister. That was definitely not the case for Scott Morrison. Nobody saw this coming. Mediocre in all its senses. He definitely wasn't dumb. He definitely wasn't top of the class. He was described to me as the sporting jock. He was, mm. you know, made his way to the the top rugby team, the top uh, rowing crew. Didn't get up to too much mischief, just one of the boys. Everyone poked fun at him. Not funny, but fun to be around. And just nobody saw him. He was like this just middle guy that if when you go back and say to these people, did you see him becoming prime minister? They are shocked to their core that he's our prime minister. Do you think they liked him? It's funny. No one was like, oh, Scotty was a great bloke, you know, loved going to the pub with him, such a hoot. But no one disliked him. He seemed to, in many ways, it's probably a good skill for politics to try to tread a middle ground. He didn't seem to be too polarising. He never spoke about politics, interestingly, too. Mm. A lot of politicians go into this when they're at university, uh, young liberal, young labour movements. He really wasn't attracted to that at all, which can be a benefit, I think. It means you hang out with more normal people <laughs> don't mm. talk about politics all the damn time. And you probably do get a sense of what people want in their lives. But no, I wouldn't say he wasn't you know, school captain, his brother was uh, deputy uh, school captain. So it seems his brother was kind of more in the limelight than he was. Um, Scott Morrison was really in sport, but he was also really into music. He played sax. Uh, he was in the jazz band, really into stage musicals. So pretty well-rounded kid, but jack of all trades, master of none, perhaps. Yeah, interesting. So a bit of a Bill Clinton on the sax. I'd love to hear him play it. Interesting you say he had a well-rounded <laughs> childhood. I think that was one of the, I think the things a lot of people would, would like about his story that, yeah, his family were involved in the local musicals. His dad ended up on local council becoming mayor. They were involved with the church, sporting groups. It really was a well-rounded childhood, as you say. And, and you write that one of his best attributes is understanding mainstream Australia. And you partly put that down to his ability to interpret research, um, but it sounds like that childhood certainly gave him that as well. It's a strange one. I look at him and, you know, as I said, I wouldn't have said um, exceptional. I think as Australians, we actually, because of our tall poppy syndrome, we perhaps don't like people necessarily that think they're a bit better, go off to the Oxfords and the Harvards. Our two prime ministers previously, before Scott Morrison, were Rhodes Scholars. 
uh, Scott Morrison was very far from a Rhodes Scholar. He did one degree, like a lot of us, and just went on and got on with his life. But I think this has given him a real different insight until, you know, he wasn't a battler, but I guess mm. he knows what it's like to just be middle of the road. And I don't care what people think of Scott Morrison, love him or loathe him. It, uh, their families are conscripts and they don't ask to be in this. And from all accounts, his family are delightful. His mum was, as you say, volunteering in the mm. local school productions and his dad was um, quite a respected copper in the New South Wales Police Force. And I think they did instill in him the importance of community. I found it interesting that there were some really big world events happening around this time. You know, Vietnam War, Harold Hole went missing, Kennedy's assassination, Martin Luther King, things like this. And I said, were these things ever discussed at home? Is that how you became involved in politics? Never. Mm. I would say insular, but that usually has negative connotations. Mm. Community first, really. Yeah. Charity starts at home in Australia. And that's, I think, what he takes as his political philosophy. Yeah, that does seem like one of the best traits that he has that he's taken on from his upbringing. Um, you talked about his study. He didn't study a, a Bachelor of Marketing, as most people would think, given his nickname. Um, he studied a Bachelor of Science in Applied Economic Geography, which is essentially social research. When he started his career and his first job was at the Property Council for six years and then he quickly moved on, was senior in two Australian tourism bodies, then by the age of 30 scored a big gig as the boss of the New Zealand tourism body. As he rose through his career so quickly at a young age, what was he actually selling himself as? Because his degree didn't give him an obvious title like a lawyer or accountant or a nurse. What was his core skill that he was trading on to move so quickly in his career? Look, it's weird, isn't it? Um, I don't know anyone who at 30 got a job leading New Zealand's tourism body. Mm. And he didn't really know the right people too. It's not like he was sort of grew up in those establishment communities where your dad's mate gets you a job. There was a little bit of like once he got his first job, he was helped. I think he's a very good networker. He can see where opportunities rise. He's also incredibly loyal to those people that put him there. He started at one tourism body, which was a little bit Labor-leaning, and he quickly moved his way into the Liberal-leaning one under Bruce Baird. In New Zealand, as you say, he went over there and ended up in a huge spat with the board. Mm. Uh, but he also saw that the minister was the person that he answered to, and that was probably his trajectory. You know, impressing the minister of the crown is a way to get ahead. He's very good at pinpointing who he needs in his life. And when you talk about marketing, a lot of his life is geared towards marketing, but he didn't work at an ad agency. Mm. He didn't do a marketing degree. But when he was doing that geography degree, he tacked an extra year on and he actually did an honours year, sort of a thesis, and it was on brethren religion studies. Now, he was a brethren at the time, but when you read it, it's very much marketing of the church. You know, how do you talk to these people? How do you recruit them? How do you get more people in your church? So it was obviously an early interest through that social geography. And he seemed to make big splashes at all those jobs through having a natural, I would say, inclination about it. One of those stories that's in the book is about him being at the property council, really, really boring. There was all this legislation. They were trying to rev up the public to encourage the government to make it a bit more streamlined. Who cares? That's not really interesting. He went and bought this big set of scales and weighed it all and said, you know, there's 30 kilograms worth of legislation and we should get this down to 300 grams or something. Hmm. It's a way of telling a story. And I think he's very good at that. He can see opportunities and he really is 
a marketing man. Now, some people would argue that he isn't good at marketing, given uh, some of his own personal tr- strife he's got himself into. But I think he is very good at talking to the electorate, even if listeners personally don't believe that as a greater sort of skill. I think it's something he has, which Malcolm Turnbull perhaps didn't. I followed them both in election campaigns. And I think Scotty from marketing, he is very good at delivering that line. All right, there's so much to talk about here, but we're running out of time on this episode. So we're going to leave the conversation here for this episode of The Briefing, but we're going to bring you part two tomorrow where we're going to find out about some of the massive conflicts Scott Morrison had in his career pre-politics and also the traits you've been hearing about, how they've influenced the big decisions that he's screwed up and got right during his time as Prime Minister. Listener.